Let's open our Bibles to Luke 17 this morning. We're going to pick up at verse 20 of Luke 17. Title of my message is Faith in Troubled Times. And the Pharisees confront Jesus with a question about when the kingdom of God is going to come. And then wraps it up in verse 8 of chapter 18, where he says, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So this whole section is about uh, the anticipation of end times things. It's trouble that's coming on the earth. And it is really this world's collide of this expectation of the Jewish leaders. See, they think they know how it's going to go. And... Things rarely go as we expect them to go. And so Jesus clarifies some things about the end times. But in this lesson, the takeaway for us is the vital importance for us to be able to trust the Lord during difficult times in our life. That is such a fundamental lesson for our Christian lives. It's easy to trust the Lord when things are going well. And every one of us will have challenging days, seasons, even seasons that could last a year or a couple of years, some major crisis that could happen in your life. And the question is, when those times come, do you keep trusting the Lord or do you freak out? I've done a little bit of both. And there are times in your life when you think, this is more than I can handle. Have you ever said that to yourself? Yeah, Lord, I trust you, but this is more than I can handle. It's actually in those seasons of your life where you discover things about the Lord you never knew. Because you know his provision in the okay times. But you kind of think, well, if it gets really bad, I don't know if the Lord's going to come through for me. But it's in those seasons where actually I've discovered the absolute limit of my ability. And whenever my strength runs out, then I have seen the never-ending, unending supply of God's grace. So it, it is in those horrible times is when my faith has grown the most. Not in the good times. It's in the hard times, the bad times. I sent to Maddie a picture to post. Do you have that picture to put up? Here's a picture that was sent to me this week by a pastor in India. I have suddenly been getting uh, a lot of friend requests on social media from pastors in India. Um, and Wednesday night, I am going to speak to a group of 13 pastors online who are ministering in the villages. They talk about the tribal villages in India, which is a huge portion of the population in India. Remember, not long ago, I mentioned the Dalits. That is the group of people in India that are untouchables. 
they are so considered so poor, so dirty, so unworthy that they are outside of the social system. It's their entire lot in life to clean out the sewers. Whatever privileges there might be in regular society, it doesn't apply to the Dalits. But over the past 20 years, over a million Dalits, over, I'm sorry, over 20 million Dalits have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story of revival, one of the many stories that are going on. And so I'm going to speak to them, and I, I have a heart for India, but I can't go there all the time. It's a 20-hour flight. I have been there before. Uh, and another pastor contacted me and said that he is a, the, a leader of a minister's association with 273 pastors under his authority, and would I speak to them? Well, I'm still searching all this out. What this really means are these honestly genuine requests, you know, what the whole situation is, whether people are just looking for money, and I'm fully aware of all that. But here's what I do know. There is this whole segment of people in India as well as around the world who live in horrible conditions. And you think, if you ever had a chance to speak to them, what would you say to them? Do they, the lessons that we learn of trusting in God, do they apply to them? Is their situation so bad that God can't care for them? What's the answer? No. So what does that mean about whatever you might be dealing with that is nowhere near as digging through the slums for food and cleaning out the sewers of the dung? As my wife and I often say, whatever challenges we might face, it could be worse. It could be worse. And whatever you're facing, are you able to trust the Lord? Well, the answer is yes, you can. But the real question is, are you willing to trust the Lord? Or do you say, I can't do this. I'm just going to go you know, do whatever I want until this trouble passes. The problem in the world is getting worse and worse. I've shared a little bit. There are stories going on in the world of increasing crisis, whether it is war, famine, deadly disease, earthquakes are happening. The aligning of nations. You hear a little bit here and there about Russia. It's actually worse than you hear in the media. There are things going on in the Middle East. End times events are really ramping up. And what if it spills over into America? more than just interest rates going up. 
more than just the cost of food going up? What if it really does come into America in a more personal, personal way? There's an author you may have heard of named Joel Rosenberg. He's Jewish and a believer who has written some amazing novels. He's also a speaker on End Times Prophecy. His ministry is called the Joshua Fund, and they commissioned a survey not long ago, a few months ago, asking people the question, do you believe the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a biblical sign of the last days of wars and rumors of wars spoken of by Jesus? They just asked the general population, the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, is this part of the end time scenario of Matthew 24? Well, no surprise, 70% of Protestants said yes, and I believe it is, wars and rumors of wars. 28% of Jews said yes. 10.4% of agnostics said yes. 6.6% of atheists said yes. Do you know that's the purpose of Bible prophecy is to get our attention and to give us proof, evidence for that we actually should believe the Bible because it's reasonable for a non-believer to say, well, how do I know that I should believe the Bible? Hopefully you've already done that research and you have come to the the reasoned conclusion that you can believe the Bible. Uh, It's right for a non-believer to say, why should I believe the Bible? And these events carrying out in front of us and on the news, nations preparing to go to war against Israel, that's Ezekiel 38, Zechariah 12, especially Zechariah 12, God says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling for all nations. Well, there wasn't even an Israel until 1948 the reforming of Israel. So these events give us evidence, proof to believe that the Bible is actually from God. And if the Bible is from God, then I can trust God with my life. I should believe Jesus. Don't be offended if a non-believer says, well, I don't know if I believe the Bible. Why should I believe the Bible? I would say the same thing, and I have said exactly the same thing to a person in another religion who has sat in my house and told me about their sacred writings and what they believe, and I'll say, how do you know this is true? And you know what? They don't have an answer. Usually the answer is, Well, you just feel that it's true. I don't really trust my feelings. Do you trust your feelings? How many times did you feel that something was true and it turned out to be a lie? Right? Some salesman says, this is the best deal. This is the lowest price ever. God has given us evidence 
And even more archaeological evidence has come up even just in the last couple of weeks in Israel. The ultimate urgency of committing our life to the Lord is that every one of us will ultimately give an account to God for our lives. It's not just which religion do you want to join. It's which God are you accountable to. It's like saying, I don't have to pay taxes if I don't believe that I should. It's not really optional. Ultimately, the tax man comes for you. Paul said in Romans 14, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Every one of us, without exception. The other options of what happens after death are not true, that the grave is the end, or reincarnation, you come back in another life. There's no verification of those teachings, that the, those who originated those teachings are reliable. We have verification of the inspiration of God's word, and reliable and worthy of our trust. As Jesus talks about then in this conversation, when is the kingdom of God coming? That's what the Pharisees want to know. He gives uh, eight points, two to the Pharisees and then six to the disciples. And I'm going to go through these in Luke 17, 20 through chapter 18 of verse eight. So if you got your pencils out, your notepads open, The first thing he says to the Pharisees of the two to them, verse 20, is that the kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, whenever the kingdom of God comes, or what they mean by that is the rule of God on the earth. Remember that Israel is ruled by Rome, and what they primarily want is for God to overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom of God as the rule of God on the earth. When is it going to happen? They think that's going to happen. Is that really what is going to happen? Not at that time. Eventually, still in the future. And so he says it's not going to come with observation. And that it simply means it's... Stop watching for almost these military signs of God overthrowing Rome and setting up his kingdom. Like they're so hyper-focused on that. He's saying, stop doing that. Secondly, in verse 21, he wants them to know, he says, for the kingdom, indeed, the kingdom of God is within you or actually among you. They're looking for the kingdom, and what they are overlooking completely is that the king is standing right in front of them. They want the kingdom, and he's going, I'm standing right here. 
and they're overlooking him for some political agenda. I mean, that really speaks to us, doesn't it? They're not focused on spiritual things. They're, spo- they're focused on political things. Well, we could, we could go off on a whole tangent here of political agendas among God's people. If I do that, half of you will not be back next week. And so I'm not really prone to doing that. Above these political things are the spiritual things that we need to be attending to. Amen? Is that okay with you that I'm not all caught up in all the propaganda in Washington? The stories we get in the news, half of them aren't true anyway. And that's being generous. There, you know what I think about that. I said I wasn't going to go there, and you made me. <laughs> the kingdom of God is within you, or... Now, that is misinterpreted to say, and you've heard people say, well, the kingdom of God is in the hearts of everybody. Have you ever heard that? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the kingdom of God is among you. Why? Because the king is among you. And wherever Jesus went and performed miracles, he was giving them a sample, a taste of the coming kingdom of God. So stop looking for other things and realize that I'm standing right here in front of you. Now, Jesus shifts and starts talking to the disciples at verse 22. And the third point that you can write down is that people, is a warning, people will say, here is the Messiah over in a secret place, as if we're going to run off and go find him. Verse 22 and 23, then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, the time's going to come when I won't be standing here with you anymore. And they will say to you, look here or look there, do not go after them. Verse, uh, Matthew 24, 23 to 25, Then if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. We're in Oregon, and so this is an old story of the guru in southern Oregon who set up the, the whole property. Do you know what I'm talking about? Many years ago? Well, that story has played out through history in different parts of the world many times over. Some guru, some yogi claiming to be the manifestation of Christ. And they are so charismatic that people flock to them. And did you know even many of these gurus have miraculous supernatural powers? That's how they're able to attract people. 
other cults or groups have said, well, Jesus has already come just in secret. Have you ever heard that? The Jehovah's Witnesses are famous for that. And they said he was going to return in 1917, 1918. And when it didn't happen, they changed the, they changed the word and said, oh, no, he, he, he did come, but it was just in secret. I've spent many hours at my kitchen table to talking to Jehovah's Witnesses about the changing predictions and theology of their books. I have lots of their books. I had a woman in our church once many years ago who uh, I have told you about her before, but she came, she became a Christian after trying out every other major world religion. And whatever religion she joined, she completely committed herself and threw herself into it. Islam and Hinduism and down the list. And the great promises of these religions would eventually be pushed aside by what she called the dark side of these religions. An evil kind of agenda behind these religions. And she was so hungry to find a relationship with God. And she went from religion to religion, to religion. And somebody from our church uh, met her when she was depressed and discouraged and said, well, you know, you tried everything out, everything else out. Why don't you investigate Jesus? And it was kind of like a last resort. Well, I, I guess I'll try. And she accepted the Lord and she she sat in the front row listening to me every Sunday for nine months, waiting for the dark side to come out. And she finally told me, I've listened to everything you have said, and everything that the Bible says is actually true. I actually finally have the peace of God. And that's why these 20 million plus Dalits in India have converted from Hinduism to Christianity because they said their, their gods of Hinduism never ever gave them peace in their hearts. And they finally just said, if your Jesus will give us peace, even in the middle of our horrible conditions, we will convert to Christianity. And they did. And it's still going. It's, it's an amazing, amazing story. It's an amazing story. People will make great promises. Here is the Messiah. Oh, we have the Messiah. And Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't believe it. The fourth point about end times things, and this is the second one to the disciples, that when Jesus does return, the whole world will see him. The whole world will see him. In verse 24, he says, For as the lightning, as the lightning that flashes out of the one part of under heaven and shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Now in Matthew 24, Jesus gives more. This is about the, the end of what we call the seven-year tribulation. Matthew 24, 
verses 30 and 31. He says, then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now in that context, it's the end of what we call that seven year period. Uh, we in the church call the great tribulation. Have you heard that phrase before? In the Old Testament, it's not called the Great Tribulation. It's called the, the, um, the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. It is Jacob's trouble. It has other phrases related to Jewish things. But the primary purpose of that seven-year period, which is marked by the signing of a treaty between Israel and and a one-world ruler that we call the Antichrist. That seven-year treaty will start the clock ticking. Halfway through that seven-year period, that world ruler will stand in the rebuilt temple in Israel. And by the way, did you know that Israel right now is planning to rebuild the temple? Did you know that? There was news just this week of red heifers being delivered to Israel. Anybody catch that story? Because for purification to be carried out, they need the sacrifice of the red heifer. Well, there hasn't been any. There hasn't been any for all these years, and suddenly they have the red heifer. They have the plans, the utensils, the cups, the menorah, everything that would go into the temple for the services, for the sacrifices, do you know it's already been made and ready? Now they have the red heifer. What all they need next is the building, the temple itself. If you were to ask Jews in Israel, when the Messiah comes, how will you know who he is? And most of the time they'll say, we'll know the Messiah because he will build our temple for us. Well, biblically, who is it that initiates the rebuilding of the temple in Israel? It's the Antichrist. And that's his job to impersonate Jesus Christ. He will be a substitute Christ. So the rapture happens, that is, the church is taken out of the earth to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Israel signs a peace treaty with this world ruler, and do I even have to convince you that the world is preparing for globalism? Are you awake? Are you aware while you're worried about interest rates, do you know that the world is preparing for globalism? It used to be that I could go on YouTube and, you know, do a search for globalism in times, and I would find a bunch of Bible teaching. Well, I just did it this week. And you know what comes up? All of these government-posted agendas about how wonderful globalism is going to be. Did you know that's there? 
Type in globalism in YouTube, and it's all of this, this propaganda about globalism will solve the world's problems. No more pandemics. The poor will be cared for. And probably there's some, you know, we want to care for these poor people in the slums of India. How do we finally rid the world of, of uh, you know, disease and poverty and all these things? Well, we need to be one country, not many countries. When was the last time the world was one? Starts with a B. Babel. That's right. And so the world is going to revert back to old things before the Lord brings judgment. Revelation 19 at verse 11, John writes, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written, that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he finally comes, it's the end of that seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, he will be seen by Every nation, every eye will see him. Number five, before Jesus rules, he must suffer. They're looking for him to rule, to rule, to rule. But he says in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. That's Isaiah 53, that Essentially, Jews will not read today. Do you know that? Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like of sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Of us all. For the past 2,000 years, Jews have avoided Isaiah 53. But I hear more and more they're looking at it. And even the rumors out of Israel is that many Jews today are believing in Jesus. And there are even stories of Jesus personally appearing to some of them. 
and to rabbis, giving them what Luke would say was convincing proofs. Do you believe that Jesus can appear today to people? Of course. He's never appeared to me. He's spoken to me before, but I have friends that he's appeared to. So it's not a radical thing. And when we're talking about faith in difficult times, uh, again, our troubles are nothing compared to the troubles people have in other parts of the world. And do you know the simplicity of the faith of the Dalits in India? They simply said, if your Jesus can heal us of our disease, then we'll believe in Jesus. A pastor would go into a village and say, if you believe in Jesus, he will help you. And they would say, prove it. Literally, they would go, well, my mother is sick with a fever on the bed. If your Jesus, if you pray for my mother and she is healed, then I'll believe in your Jesus. How would you like that kind of test of your faith? It happened to me. Uh, we were in, I was in India, and me and another pastor, they took us out to a village, little church, and all the people sat on the dirt road, and there was a floodlight just to light it up, and he preached a little bit, and then I preached a little bit, and I thought, we're done. They're going to take us back to the hotel. And all of a sudden, people started forming a long line in front of, of, of us. And I'm going, what are they doing? Our host said, well, you have to pray for them. I did my job. What do you mean I have to pray for them? No, they're sick. Some of them are sick. And this man got in front of me. He was dripping wet with a fever and perspiration. And I said, what's wrong with him? And they said, well, he has the fever. Well, who knows what that is? And I'm thinking, oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, literally, I'm going, what do I do? I'm saying, Lord, what do I do? Do I say, oh, you know, pretend to lay hands on him? No, I laid hands on, on him and he was soaking wet from a fever. I don't know if this is malaria or what this is. The fever could be anything. Well, I prayed he was healed, and I didn't get sick. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and my wife was glad that I came home and didn't get sick. Your faith will get put to the test. Not just, oh, Lord, help me buy groceries. But real faith put to the real test. Jesus said, before the kingdom comes, I am going to suffer and die for your sins. The cross, people will, might say to you, if there is a God, why doesn't he intervene? The cross is the intervention. Do you know that? The cross is the intervention. My worship team is up here already. They don't know that I've got another hour of notes to go. <laughs> Keep writing. Number six. When judgment comes, the world will be caught by surprise. 
you and I should not be caught by surprise. But in this section, verses 26 and forward, Jesus says that it will be like the days of Noah. Have you heard that phrase in end times prophecy? It'll be like the days of Noah. What does that mean? It means that when Noah was building the ark and warning people of the judgment that is coming, they just continued their lives as if nothing was happening. That, along with such corruption that had increased in the world, that it says in Genesis 6-5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intent and the thought of his heart was only evil continually. The days of Noah, constant evil and living lives as normal as if nothing is going to happen. It's easy to slip into just a normal routine and not paying attention to the fact that the water is boiling. Look around and see what's happening. Number seven, when judgment comes, Jesus warns the Jews to flee from Israel. This next section in that day, verse 31, he which is in the housetops, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. You read in Matthew 24 that whenever these things fall out, whenever the abomination of desolation, have you heard that phrase before, the abomination of desolation? That's the, the description of when the Antichrist stands in the temple and declares that he is God and demands to be worshipped as God. That's Daniel chapter 9. It's an abomination that causes the desolation of the rebuilt temple. You and I will be in heaven, but those that God is reaching in Israel of the Jews, he's saying, when you see that happen, flee. Just get out of here. Don't even take time to grab your coats. The last thing I just want you to write down, and this is... Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, is that God will bring justice to an unjust world. In this section, Jesus tells a parable about a woman who goes before an unjust judge, and she badgers him and badgers him and harasses him to get judgment in her favor. And the lesson out of that parable is Jesus says, do you see essentially what the unjust judge did? He gave her what she wanted. Now, that's a strange parable because we think, well, does that mean I'm supposed to harass God with my requests until he gives me what I want? No, that's not what it, the lesson is. The primary lesson is that, is that even if an unjust judge can carry out justice, how much more will our loving, righteous Heavenly Father do what is right and carry out what is just? So he's saying, don't lose heart when you pray. Pray. And it, it can feel like when you're praying that it's not doing anything. 
there's still injustice around me. Still, that person hasn't apologized to me. And the Lord brings justice in his time and in his way. I think I've talked about that a lot with you, and I think that's an important lesson because so many times we can't move forward in our Christian life because of some old offense. And if you can't let it go, you can't move forward. And offenses happen to all of us. Amen? And most of you are nodding your head at me. Yes, that jerk that offended me, that person. What you will learn is how just and righteous God is. When you ask for a resolve, God hears you. And he's going to take care of it in his way and in his time. So you can put it in his hands and get on with your life. Do you hear me? Put it in his hands and get on with your life. Because that offense, you imagine in your mind, I can't move forward unless that is taken care of. As if that person or that event is going to prevent God from blessing you. Nobody or nothing that ever happened to you can prevent God from blessing you. Do you know that? Why would you give somebody control of your whole life? Why would you give them that much control? Whatever injury has happened does not prevent God from blessing you. So let's talk about the amazing things that God wants to do in your life. And it truly is a work of God in our hearts to be able to let it go. That doesn't mean it doesn't, it didn't matter or they're not going to be held accountable. It just means you're going to let God deal with it. What about all this injustice in the world? Isn't God going to stop that country from invading that country? Isn't God going to stop that pandemic? Or doesn't God see what's happening in Washington, D.C.? All the manipulating, all the, the fake news. There I said the words, fake news. We all know it's going on. Is God powerless? No. To God, it is like the ripening vineyard. That when he judges, he will be seen as just. Right now, not everyone knows that these secret agendas are really false and evil. But we know. And those agendas are not preventing God from working. And if God is able to work, I, I have the dollars on my mind because of all these messages from India this week. But if God's able to help them, how much more is he able to help me with my little problems? Let's stand together. And as we close this morning, 
I want to just encourage you to decide to yield your life into God's hands.